Well, this morning we're going to be thinking about one of the basic doctrines of the Christian faith, salvation by faith alone. We are justified by faith alone, not faith and works, but uh, by faith uh, in God alone. And uh, it's interesting because we're actually going to be thinking about this doctrine from the Old Testament. So if you're thinking that Paul was creating something out of thin air that was not part of the divine plan of God from the beginning, uh, well then this is going to be a pleasant surprise for you. We're back in our Just God series on the book of Habakkuk where the prophet has had a conversation with God and we've been tracking that conversation. Uh, You'll remember first Habakkuk comes to God and he has this complaint, how long are we going to have to wait for you, God, to come and to respond and do something about the injustice that we see all around us with Jews sinning against Jews? Well, God responds to to Habakkuk uh, after that, and he essentially says, I'm already doing something that you are going to be astounded by. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that unjust people to come and bring about my just judgments over the whole earth. Well, that's one of those situations where you get a response that you feel like the, the answer is worse than the problem that you came with. And so he responds to God again, and he says, but God, and this is what we saw last week, how is it that the unjust Babylonians can come and bring your judgment? Will they swallow up your covenant people as they come? Now, that's what we're picking up where we left off last week, where Habakkuk is waiting for God's answer. How is God going to respond to that question? Well, he responds in verses 2 to 5. And in these verses, we find, which goes with a larger section of 2 to 20, we find one of the most important verses in all of the Bible in verse 4, which says, the righteous shall live by faith. One commentator, Charles Feinberg, speaking of this verse, says it is the watchword of Christianity, these words in Habakkuk. It is the key to the whole book of Habakkuk and the central theme of the whole Bible. Some of you are thinking, man, I just learned where Habakkuk is in the Bible. And now I find out it's like the center of the Bible. Well, that is high praise for this short verse. But you'll remember that it's not really out of step with what we've seen before. Uh, you'll remember it was in Genesis 15, 6 that God speaks to the patriarch of our faith, Abraham. And, and speaking of him, uh, he says there, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. In the New Testament, these, this verse, the righteous shall live by faith in Habakkuk, it's quoted in three places, in Romans 1, 17, in Galatians 3, 11, and then in Hebrews 10, 38. It's a verse that these authors look to and see as central to their understanding of the gospel. In fact, R.C. Sproul, looking at this verse in Romans 1.17, says he thinks it's a kind of theme verse for the whole book of Romans. Now, I'd like to add some to that, but I think it's a good start. But our aim this morning is to understand how Habakkuk understood these words in his context so that we can better understand why they matter so much to us today. Now, as we look at this, You'll remember that immediately prior to verses 2 to 5, Habakkuk was waiting for an answer to his question, to his prayer to the Lord. He's just waiting. And his question was this, God, will you allow your covenant people Judah to die in the coming judgment on the nations through the self-reliant nation of Babylon? Will your mercy interrupt their mercilessness? You'll remember in Habakkuk 1.12 that he said, Habakkuk, he declared, we shall not die. But I almost imagine as Habakkuk is declaring that to God, he, he then sort of winces a little bit and says, right? Like you're not going to wipe us out. We know it. Right, God? You're still mercy and grace to your chosen people, Israel, out of all nations, like you promised in Exodus 34.6. Right? It almost looks like an apocalyptic end-time judgment is coming towards them. These people that almost look superhuman. And Habakkuk asked if God will deliver his people again. Well, this morning God tells his people how to live amidst an apocalyptic judgment dropping on the nations. Here's how you live. If you see danger coming, if you are fearful, if you see chaos all around, here's the game plan. If you're taking notes, our big idea is this. 
The righteous live by steadfast trust in Christ to the end. It's going to take some time to get there, but we're going to arrive here. The righteous live by steadfast trust in Christ to the end. And we'll see this first in verses 2 to 3. In verses 2 to 3, where we see that waiting means trusting God between promise and fulfillment. Waiting means trusting God between promise and fulfillment. Now, we left off in verse 1 with Habakkuk asking God if his special mercy is going to save Judah from God's judgment through Babylon. And once he's done, he takes his position on his watchtower, and he's watching and waiting for God to respond to him. And he's hoping that he gets a response from God before he sees the Babylonians coming. But he's waiting. And you've heard there are no atheists in foxholes. I think that grossly underestimates the stubbornness of the human heart, my human heart, apart from the grace of God. But there is, I believe, a sense in which the trials and tribulations of this life can drive us to an end of ourselves. Where we have to make a decision if we're going to look to God for only answers that he can provide or if we're going to die in our rebellion. Well, don't miss this. This world creates questions that we need to look to an otherworldly source to find the answers that we long for. All of the answers that you want in this world to this world's calamities and situations, the circumstances of your life, they're not to be found here. You have to look to God. See, this world creates questions that require otherworldly answers, like, where can I find hope in a world that is crashing in on my head? Well, Habakkuk looks for God's word as the only balm that can heal his troubled soul. And look at what God's answer is in verse 2. Here's what he says again. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. We see a couple of things here. First, we see that God's word brings hope to his prophet for his people. Hope is invading this, this, this situation that Habakkuk finds himself in. Now, I don't have a lot of time to spend on verse 2. In brief, there are all kinds of disagreements on this verse as to the, the size, nature, and number, number of the tablets and as to whether one who reads is running with his feet or running with his eyes so that he can read it quickly, and whether the content of the, the verses that he's supposed to write down on these tablets is verse 4 or chapter 3 or the whole book, all kinds of disagreements. But I, I'm going to, to just sort of short-step that this morning and side with commentator O. Palmer Robertson, who sees writing this vision down as demonstrating its usefulness for future generations. And he observes a, a point here that it, it looks like a kind of covenant renewal. Now, in a covenant renewal, uh, you would have a, a greater king and a lesser king, and uh, there would be at that moment a kind of fresh copy of the covenant law that would be written down similar to the kind of significance that we see with the Ten Commandments. God is saying, I am, I am showing you that I am for you and committed to you. I think this seems to fit with the tablets that are being discussed because the vast majority of the use of this word for tablets speak of the Ten Commandments, also called the Tablets of the Covenant. In fact, Jewish tradition declared that the 613 laws of the Pentateuch had been reduced down to one by Habakkuk. And prophets were often sent running with the message. You'll remember in Zechariah 2.4, Zechariah heard the Lord command his message, messenger to run and deliver his announcement. And speaking of false prophets, in Jeremiah 23, 21, the Lord says, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. So in context, the Lord says that he has given a message to Habakkuk that will be carried out to others through more than one person through ages that are to come. It's an important message. I, I take this to mean that God's possible renewing of his covenant with his people here is a, a means of hope. You know, they, they feared he would abandon them to the coming judgment. And he says, no, I, I am still your God and you are still my people. And God says, I'm not done with you. I will not leave or forsake you. Judah is guilty of violence just like Babylon. Remember that? Verses 1 to 4. Babylon is guilty of violence. And yet here God says that I will stand with and for my people. Now we're going to have to see who those people are in the coming verses. 
But notice what he says in verse 3. He says, wait for the future fulfillment of God's promise. I want you to wait for it. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen, and it's going to take a while. And between the already and the not yet, I need you to be patient and faithful. Wait for it. Now, Christian, I'm sure you've experienced something very similar to verse 3 in your life personally. Not exactly in that you have received direct revelation from the Lord. If you think you have, you need to come talk to us. But in verse 1, you'll remember that Habakkuk says, I will wait on God's response. He has prayed, he has, he has asked for God to speak, and he says, I will wait. And what is God's response? Okay, you listening close? I want you to hurry up and what? Wait some more. God always calls us to be more patient than what we want to be. God tells this prophet, hurry up and wait. Wait more. Wait patiently, confidently, trustingly. God will fulfill his promises. And then in verse 3, he says this, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now, the vision that God gives Habakkuk that would send others running is awaiting an appointed time. Don't, don't miss this. They are to run even as they wait. They are waiting for two things that are really, I think, one thing here. It's an appointed time, and notice that it hastens to the end. So the appointed time and the end, it seems to be the, the kind of same thing. And, and it, even though it says that it's running, it also says that it's waiting. And in fact, you'll notice the language is, is something that sets up a kind of expectation and, and excitement and urgency, and yet at the same time says, but, but you might sense that it's delaying. There would be a delay between the the promise and the fulfillment. God revealed future events to Habakkuk that he needed to wait to verify the veracity of the prophecy. Is it true? It will show to be true, but wait till you see it. And the word for appointed time here is an interesting word. It's used throughout the scriptures. Uh, the first time, one of the first times that we find it used in the Bible, we find it in Genesis, speaking of Abraham and Sarah. They were still Abram and Sarah at this time. And in these verses, we find the angel of the Lord coming to Abram and Sarah, and you'll remember that they had been promised a seed, a child, an offspring that would be great amongst the nations, that kings would come from him, that the nations would be blessed through him. And yet, year after year, Sarah couldn't have a baby. They just waited and waited and waited. They tried to help God a little bit. That got ugly, didn't work out. And so they, they had to be told again, you need to wait. And here the angel of the Lord comes in Genesis 18, and he tells Abraham, mark your calendar because your wife Sarah will give birth to a son about this time next year when you're going to be 100 and she's going to be 90. Now, Sarah, I love it, the story. She's in the next room and she's kind of listening to this promise being made to Abraham from the, the angel of the Lord. And she does what? She laughs in her heart. She says, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. How is a 90-year-old woman going to give birth to a baby? That's a paraphrase, by the way. And the Lord responded in Genesis 18, 14 to her because he heard her heart. And he says, is anything too hard for the Lord, for Yahweh, your covenant God? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah will have a son to which Sarah responded, I'm not laughing anymore. See, Sarah could not believe that God could cash the check that he wrote with his mouth and bringing that about in real time and fulfilling the promise that he gave her at 90. But God called his shot at the appointed time. And notice how the Lord puts waiting and hastening here together for Habakkuk. They are to wait, and yet it's hastening. And it will not delay, but if it feels like it, you need to be patient. See, the language seems to assume the timing will not be according to human expectations. And yet... Here we see it was on God's timing spot on. And it hastens to the end. 
That end here seems to be a coming judgment of Babylon, but is also a kind of type, I believe here, of eschatological or end times event that they are looking forward to, such as the coming wrath of God. In other words, here it is really speaking about Babylon coming and wiping out the nations, which is going to happen in just a little less than a few years from here. But yet this is going to become a kind of type that we read throughout the Bible of end times judgment or wrath, and God's just wrath that is to come. But for here, catch this. God may seem slow, but He does not delay. I'm guessing that if we were to take a poll right now, by hands, and people were like awake and had enough coffee and all that, and I were to ask you, does it feel to you like God is always on time. Most of you would say, I know theologically that's true, but experientially that feels absolutely false. Most of you would say, I think God, it seems like most of the time he forgets to set his alarm, right? And yet God's ways are higher than our ways. His timing is always perfect. It's our own waiting and patience on God that is imperfect. In fact, in the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, they translate this verse very interesting. And they tell us that this is really centered in something much greater that God is doing, this experience of waiting on God's justice and His his wrath and Him coming to respond and save His people. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, they translate this same verse, wait for it, it will surely come as wait for Him, for He will surely come. In fact, if you look at Hebrews, one of those three verses that I taught you, uh, I told you is, is quoted, uh, is quoting Habakkuk 2.4. Hebrews actually picks up on this Greek version of the text. And he, he quotes this in Hebrews 10.35 to 39, speaking of Christ as the it they are waiting on. See, there the pastor of Hebrews tells Jewish Christians not to turn or shrink back from faithfully following Christ amidst suffering before saying this in verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, a coming reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while. Verse 37, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall Live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere or preserve their souls. Now here's what's interesting. When Hebrews picks this up in chapter 11, you'll remember that he goes into this whole hall of faith, the heroes of the faith. And most of us, when we think of that chapter, we think about all of their mighty accomplishments. But do you know how the chapter ends? It ends with what sort of strings them together. One aspect, not just their faith, but also one more aspect about the nature of who they are. In verse 39, it highlights this about their faith. All these, though commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised. They lived faithfully between the time of promise and fulfillment. And they never received the fulfillment that they were longing for. So Hebrews 12 seems to connect Hebrew 10's command for endurance and chapter 11's heroes of the faith who didn't receive the promise with a call to run with endurance the race set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for who the joy was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, the point, we like Judah are living in the space between promise and fulfillment Jesus is returning to judge the living and the dead. Are you ready for Jesus to come back? Are you ready ready for the hymn that Habakkuk anticipated? See, Habakkuk could see Babylon at the gates of Judah. He, He could just, he could envision them coming in, just like they did in Hezekiah's day. And God said it might feel like trusting me feels laughable in this moment. You're waiting on Christ today. And maybe you feel like Habakkuk in your life, in your experience. And you're like, you don't know what's going on in my life, Pastor. My life is is a mess. My family's a mess. My job's a mess. And I look on the news and I find out the world's a, a worse mess maybe than all of that. It feels like Jesus, if he was coming back, should come back right now. You know what's interesting to me? 
when I look at history and I look at um, the nature of like cataclysmic events, people are always immediately packing their bags. I don't think that's a bad posture to have. But as soon as things sort of pass over, it's like they think, oh, well, I guess Jesus isn't coming back, and so they just sort of forget it. And maybe that's something that's happened during this pandemic. You've gotten your bags packed. You're thinking, this is it, Pastor. Jesus is coming back. And let me just ask you this. If this isn't the timing, if this isn't God's timing, are you going to put your bag back? Are you going to live every day with a bag packed ready for the return of Jesus Christ, trusting that he could come back at any moment? Maybe today you have gotten tired of waiting on God. You feel like God is late. He didn't save your spouse he didn't help your kid in the way that you wanted. He, he didn't give you the job that you wanted. You're stuck in a job you didn't want. You feel like there are all kinds of promises that you imagine that God has made to you that he hasn't. But he, he just is, he's late. All the good that you want, it just hasn't come. And you can't imagine a satisfied life without the things that you've lost. And you question whether or not Christ is worth waiting for or if he's ever going to show up. In the midst of that, your enemies are mocking your faith, maybe even folks in your own home. Now, if you add to that a sinful heart, boredom, and a tired body, you have a recipe for disaster. You have a recipe for for people who give up on waiting for Christ. I I love what the pastor of the Hebrews seems to say. He says to, to that audience, as they are in danger of losing a readiness and a watchfulness for the return of Christ, know this. We know the it that Habakkuk was waiting for. It's a he, and his name is Jesus. We have seen Jesus come and live and die and be raised again from the dead for us. We have seen him ascend to heaven. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He was the end that Judah awaited for the first time, and he's the end that we are waiting for as Christians to come again. But Jesus has told us that he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And God calls us to endure faithfully until that end. So how you endure, I believe Habakkuk in the New Testament teaches, determines your end to some degree, or at least it, it tells you what it's going to be like. So let me just encourage you today, like Hebrews and Habakkuk does, wait, wait for Jesus. He, he's never tardy. He always keeps his word, and he's worth waiting on. See, Jesus promises in in Luke 18, 7 to 8, And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? Here's his answer. I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. The justice that you long for, the things to be made right, they are coming. And they'll come in the blink of an eye on God's timing. But third, notice this. There are two attitudes towards the promises of God. Two attitudes in verses 4 to 5. And we can learn from this. See, this verse really looks kind of like a proverb. Offering wisdom about two ways to live in light of the promises of God. One is self-reliance and the other is righteousness. Uh, One is pride and the other is faith. Now, the Babylonians were self-reliant and their end is death, but don't miss the invitation of God's people to repent of looking more worldly than godly as they committed violence against their brothers and sisters. They, too, are invited to listen and believe and understand that the righteous live by his faith. Now, you'll notice that you have two kinds of people here, and they're not marked by nationality necessarily, but by the nature of the soul. One lives by faith or a hopeful posture in the Word of God. The other, the other has a soul that is never satisfied, it's never at rest. He lives in this world and his appetites are never satisfied. He is self-confident and restless. His possessions grow. And yet, as they grow and the world might look on and think that this is a picture of power and success, God says, from my perspective, it is the appetite of death. And so there's an incongruity, a a dissonance between the outward and the inward man here. Now now notice what he says in verse 4. He says this. He says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now notice first that he speaks here of the self-reliant man 
And then he goes on in the second half of verse 4 to talk about the other guy. Now, here's what he says. He says, remember this, and remember this is Yahweh responding to Habakkuk. He says, his soul, this proud one, it's puffed up. It's not upright within him. It's not righteous. It's unrighteous. Now, some have seen, as they looked at this text, Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe he's prophesying the future coming of him. And of course, we do see the the way that God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. And maybe he's included, but I take this to speak of Babylon, that people that's already been spoken of in the first person in previous verses, that unjust instrument of the justice of God. See, God gets straight to the heart of the matter here. He's concerned with the soul of the people of Babylon, which is puffed up. It's a word for elevated or inflated. It can speak of a tumor. If you want some fun, go look that up and read about the kind of tumor it is. Or figuratively, for an inflated sense of pride. Now, there was also an elevated, fortified area in Jerusalem. It was between the Temple Mount and the city of David, where they built defenses. And one commentator was picking up on this because the name of this area is Ophel, which is the same, it's actually my grandfather's name, but it's also the name of this this area, this fortified area between the Temple Mount and and the city of David. And, And this author, this commentator, when he picks it up, he says that this image is used to describe the heart of man that elevates himself above God and builds defenses around his soul apart from God. In other words, he is looking for meaning and safety and defenses and everywhere else but God. He's self-reliant. He's trying to develop an identity and a dignity for himself and his people apart from God. You'll notice that this man's soul is not upright within him. Their souls are not right in relation to God. They're, they're sideways or crooked. They're self-reliant, not God-reliant. And this puffed-up soul, uh, he really just he reminds me according to this imagery, of a kind of thing that, that I see often with my boys when, when they go fishing in the ocean. A lot of times they go and they fish and they catch all kinds of different fish. And one of their favorite fish to catch is this little puffer fish. I don't know if you've ever seen these before, uh, but they got these little teeth and they just kind of, I mean, really kind of nasty little fish. But, but the thing that's fun about them is they start blowing up, self-inflating like a balloon when you catch them. And the reason is, is because they want to intimidate any sort of predator that would come after them. They want to look bigger, like twice the size that they normally are. And yet, what we know as fishermen is they're just a a hook prick away from being deflated and shown for what they really are. And that really is humanity that takes pride in himself rather than God. We build up ourselves as to our greatness and our reputations. We can even use our own good deeds and righteousness to start thinking really well of ourselves and start thinking better of ourselves than others and start putting others down because we're better than they are. We can do all those kinds of things, and yet we know that when we come before a holy and righteous and perfect God, that any identity or dignity that we seek apart from Him deflates into nothing before His perfect holiness and righteousness and power and wisdom. We're kind of like pufferfish. It's just air. But notice verse 5 highlights how the self-reliant soul is never at rest internally, never satisfied. He says in verse 5, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, the place of the dead. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own, all peoples. Now the metaphor shifts here. Uh, it's, it's interesting, if you look in a, a Qumran commentary, he, they change wine here to wealth. And it makes sense, because you'll notice he goes on to speak about greed, and wealth speaks with greed better. Now, I think either work. But, but I tend to go with the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text, as a baseline, because it, it makes more sense that someone would change wealth to fit greed than to stick wine um, in unless wine was original. Babylon was also known for extravagant parties with wine and greed, so it's not hard to imagine that both images would depict this people. They were worldly and self-reliant. They drink to soothe their soul's 
They drink to, to cause their arrogant souls to, to feel uh, in some ways uh, desensitized to the, the turmoil that is within them. I mean, did you see that, that God's word, God himself speaks to Habakkuk and he says, they are never at rest internally. I know the truth about their souls. Booze might tell him he's okay. I'm saying he's not. He's setting him up for a, a great fall, the, the alcohol. Notice he, he has the greed of the nations here. And he's likened to a, a never-ceasing appetite of Sheol. That's the place of the dead and death itself. And so Babylon could so easily sing with the, the great English philosopher Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones. I just can't get no satisfaction. They just consume and consume and consume. And, and they're never at rest. They're never at peace. It's never enough. See, the historical Babylon is also a type of life that literally sees man as big and God as small. Small to non-existent. And Babylon lives a life of endless appetites. And he looks like his end. The end of Babylon is death and destruction. He looks powerful and safe now. But his end, his end is death and destruction. And the space between the now of power and the end of death and destruction is what? A restless soul. It's no life. Now, Christian, let me just come to you this morning and just ask you, can you sense in your soul this morning that perhaps you have suddenly shifted into seeing yourself or others as big and God as small? And that's not just something that can happen to non-Christians. There are ways in which we can begin to see God as smaller and man as bigger. The shift is subtle. It, it creates a restlessness of the soul, though. Even every four years, you have fresh opportunities to see whether or not you are trusting in man or in God. And just think about it. Every four years, do you feel like a new political messiah has arisen that holds the fate of the world in his hand? And that if he loses, does God feel a little bit smaller in your eyes? Do you feel like things just got a little more out of control or less in control because your candidate did not win? Single guys and girls. I'm just curious. Are your hearts restless until you found a, sp a spouse? Can you not rest in God because you're just, your appetite, you just long for something that's very good. Something that, that God has created you for that, that is a, a good gift and yet it's become so enamoring that, that that desire, not just even of a specific person, but this ideal person of your mind, has you up at nights. Makes it hard to, to focus on God, to love others, to serve sacrificially. Desiring to get married is good. But has the pursuit of a spouse tied you to an insatiable appetite that treats a future spouse as big and God as small today? And parents, you know, we can do this too with our kids. I mean, maybe you fail to obey God's command to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, even though they're creating chaos in the home because you fear losing their favor. It's amazing how little four-year-olds make horrible gods, right? You bring them their little candy sacrifices and like, will you smile for me? And if you don't, I'm gonna just, the world just falls apart. It's too hard to discipline. Or maybe you're trusting your boss and he's big in your eyes and God is small. You trust that if you can make enough money, you're going to be satisfied. You'll be safe. You're, you're living for retirement, which may or may not come for you because you don't know what the end of your days is. Or maybe you just live for the approval of others. And it doesn't matter how many trophies you've gotten at work or your racquetball league. It just doesn't seem to satisfy that longing that you have for glory. Don't miss this. A greater end is coming that Habakkuk only anticipates. Habakkuk didn't get the full picture. And God teaches Judah through Babylon what a life like this leads to. No satisfaction and then death. See, our great God created us for something much bigger than ourselves. As the great African preacher Augustine said in his confessions, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. If you're a non-Christian, let me just ask you this morning this question. Do you feel satisfied in your soul? 
Or are you restless? You know, there is one man who is bigger than the others. That's Jesus Christ. He's the one man that you look to, the one man that's different than other men. He is the God-man, the one who came to save you from a life, a rescue from a life of enslaving appetites that lead to death. In fact, in Matthew eleven eighteen to 20, I mean, 28 to 30, he says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That longing that you have, that satisfaction you desire, Christ made you for himself. Verse 29, he says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. He is not proud, thinking more of himself than he is. He is humble in the sense that God-man came down to us to take our burdens. Verse 30, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And maybe you need to burden yourself with Jesus this morning so that you can know what it is to have a soul that is satisfied in Christ. Now, how do you do that? Well, hang with me. Take note of that last phrase in verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous don't smell like death. Did you catch that? They live. That's their end. Habakkuk said, we shall not die. He said that back up in in chapter 1. And God responds, The righteous shall live by faith. That's how they live. An apocalyptic-like judgment is coming, but the righteous live. Now now notice what happens. The righteous live by faith. Here's what he says. Look in Habakkuk 1.7. I want you to just hang with me for a second and follow how this verse fits in context. First, 1.7. Their justice and dignity... Go forth from themselves. That's the Lord speaking of Babylon. Their justice and dignity, it comes out of themselves. And then in verse 111, he he concludes, they are what? Guilty men. They make their own laws, their own rules. And they were powerful, and they think that might makes right. But guess what? There is a higher judge. A judge of heaven and earth who is looking down. And he says, you might think you're innocent, but I say you are what? Guilty. You're guilty. And then in verse 2.13, Habakkuk asks, why do you let the wicked Babylonians swallow up what? The man more righteous than he. Sound familiar? Maybe you've asked that same question yourself. Why is it that the wicked people always get the good TVs? And yet here he says, catch this. Speaking of, in verse 4, he says, you think that Jews are, are more righteous, and maybe he's speaking of a righteous remnant, but in verse 4, we find God's explanation of an alternative lifestyle to that of Babylon and sinful Judah. Here, here, here it is. Here are my people. The righteous, the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, it seems like a third category that's added to unjust Jews and Babylonians already mentioned. None are righteous but those who live by faith. Now, in in the Dictionary of the Bible, Joel Skinner, he observes the language of righteousness and justice place this in the context of a courtroom. So as he's talking about righteousness and justice, he's thinking of a, a courtroom. That's what the Hebrews would have been thinking about. It's a courtroom with a judge, and he goes on to write this. What is meant is that questions of right and wrong were habitually regarded from a legal point of view is a matter to be settled by a judge. And that this point of view is emphasized in the words derived from the Hebrew word for righteousness. Hebrews understood righteousness, whether it was moral or religious in nature, is incomplete until a judicial sentence was passed. God had to deem it right as a judge. Israel was God's people, and the law stood at the center of his covenant with them, displaying the way of blessing and life for obedience, but also showing that curse and death came for disobedience. So here one might ask, who can stand before God as a great judge based on his own righteousness? Who can do that? The the proud are not morally upright in verse 4, but those who are legally righteous shall live. Well, I like what Again, O. Palmer Robertson writes, he says that these verses should actually be read in this way. Verse 4b, But the justified, by his steadfast trust he shall live. 
And then he explains what that means. This phrase explains the way by which the gift of life continues to be received rather than the way by which a sinner is declared righteous. The proud must die. But life is a gift to those who depend upon God's grace moment by moment. He will survive God's coming devastating judgment. Now there you might ask yourself, but where does the righteousness come from? The righteousness that is given to some. Does this really answer that? Does it leave it open where this righteousness comes from? Well, by no means. One must depend on God for his life and righteousness. It's all from God. So just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, the righteousness of Habakkuk's day, those righteous people are justified or made righteous by steadfast faith. It's by faith alone that they are saved. I love what John Calvin said here. He described the faith that Habakkuk commends, saying, it is that faith which strips us of all arrogance and leads us naked and needy to God, that we may seek salvation from Him alone, which would otherwise be far removed from us. That's the nature of the faith that we bring to God. It is something that strips us of every work, good work that we have done, and it frees us from the guilty of all sins that we have performed before God. See, the prophet hasn't spoken of eternal life yet clearly, though. Here in this verse, he, he hasn't spoken about ultimate things. He's said here, be patient and trust God to deliver you, even as you were exposed to Babylonia, Babylon at the front gates and Satan at the back. You have spiritual and physical enemies. I'm encouraging you, trust God. Now, the prophet would watch and wait for Babylon to sweep the nations. And come and and carry away their young men like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they would become real-life illustrations of what it looked like to live in Babylon as exiles. They would have to be faithful and trust God, even though they would have all kinds of significant punishments that they would face for following Him. They would trust that God would save them. They would demonstrate what it looks like for the righteous to live by steadfast trust. They wouldn't bow to Nebuchadnezzar or Marduk. They would trust and obey because there was no other way to be satisfied in their souls or to live apart from faith in God, even when it felt like the world was falling down around them. But what does this have to do with eternal salvation? Because the New Testament picks this up everywhere and speaks of eternal salvation. Well, Paul says it has everything to do with the gospel. It has everything to do with salvation. In Romans 1, 16 to 17, where he quotes this, he, he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, quoting Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, did you catch that? Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, these verses, when Martin Luther, that great reformer, read them, they absolutely paralyzed his soul. In fact, he said, I hate that word, the righteousness of God. You might say, that doesn't sound like a good monk. But here's why. He says, it's by that in his day, that all of the teachers that he were listening to and that taught him told him that God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. He needed to work his way up into salvation. He would only be saved according to his righteousness. And Luther, he says he became spiritually incapacitated, unable of living by faith because he knew the greatness of his guilt before God. It created an incredible, insoluble kind of turmoil within him. Do do you see it? He he, he could not be satisfied. God himself has said that both Jew and Gentile are guilty. He'll say later in Romans, there is none righteous, no, not one, quoting from the Old Testament. So Luther looked inward and he realized that he deserved the end time just wrath of God based on his own life. His great fear wasn't the Babylonians and the judgment that would come through God, but the wrath of God himself that was coming. 
The reality is that God's judging righteous character requires him not to let sin go without punishment. If he did, he wouldn't be good and righteous anymore. But God also, in his righteousness, has a saving righteousness. There is a saving righteousness that is part of the character of God, whereby he must save his people that he has covenanted and committed himself to. And that saving righteousness deemed it right and good that he would sacrifice his one-of-a-kind son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners and restore relationship with them. See, Jesus willingly took the bullet of the eternal wrath of God for you and me that we might be justified. Once we put our faith in Jesus Christ and his life, his perfect life on our account and his sacrificial death in our place on the cross, and the fact that he was raised from the dead to declare that whoever will put their faith in him will be saved by that faith and that faith alone. Whoever does that will become the people of God. See, God sees us as positionally justified by faith in Christ. We will never be more or less just than we are by faith in Christ. This is what Luther calls the sweet exchange. We, when we put our faith in Christ, are actually taking the whole sum and lot of our sins, past, present, and future, and we are crediting them to Christ's account so that Christ on the cross nailed our sins to the tree, all of them forever. And in exchange, we find that Jesus from heaven hands us down credit for his perfectly righteous life. Think about that. Never thought a bad thought. Never got mad in traffic and wanted to kill somebody. Never got mad at his mom or his dad in a way that wasn't righteous. Everything was perfect from this guy. He never stole. He never cheated. He never wanted to steal or cheat. And that guy, his resume is credited to our account. And you go back and you think about, man, I'm not like that. Like, I struggled even today in the parking lot of the church, like, sort of angry at somebody. And I'm saved. Don't even talk about the things I did before I was saved and the things that I've done after that, that I continue to feel broken about. And yet, we find at the cross, we have a sweet exchange in which not only are those things taken up in Christ, but you have received double grace in the sense that he has given you his very righteousness credited to your account. And all of that comes to you based on faith in Christ. That is the sweet exchange. That's a good exchange, right? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake God made him, being Jesus, to be no sin, Uh, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that a glorious thing? You and me, unrighteous sinners, transformed in the righteousness of God by the power of Jesus Christ. Now, a couple things I want to just close with. Uh, One is, just to be clear, saving faith isn't mere mental assent. That's not what we mean when we're talking about saving faith, that you're saved by faith alone. In fact, if you think about biblical faith, biblical faith has always been something that produces fruit. You see evidence of the one who has been met with the power of God. So you see it with Abraham in his life, you see it with Habakkuk in his life, and even more so in the New Testament people of God. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, speaking of faith, said faith, it has three parts if you're thinking biblical faith. It has this first part of the reality of what Jesus Christ has done in his life, death, and resurrection for sinners. The second part is a reality that you believe that that, that, that thing that happened, that history, that Jesus who entered time and space, actually did that for your sins. In other words, it's not just a general thing, but it's something that was done for you. But you're not done yet. He said there's one last part, the third part that's really important, a part that he calls recumbency. Now, recumbency is is really like a, a lazy boy chair. You know, it's called a recumbent chair. A recumbent chair, you, you go and you, you sort of, on a, a Sunday afternoon, you just kind of lean back into it, watch the game. And when you lean back into it, what are you trusting? That that chair is going to hold you, that it's going to catch you, that it's not going to drop you. And for Spurgeon, that was the, the aspect of your life that says you are trusting God with your whole life, with the decisions that you make, with the things that you believe in, you are trusting God. You are following Christ. You are learning to obey all that he has commanded you. You're learning to observe all that he taught. That's what true faith looks like. It doesn't just stay in the mind. It's not just something you imagine. 
It is something that actually transforms and shapes you, which leads to a second important uh, fact of faith, which is salvation is by faith alone, not faith that is alone. See, saving faith seeks to obey God. We're not saved by faith and works. Like, that's the Catholic Church. If you want, that's something else. But we believe in a, a salvation that comes to us that says we are saved by faith that works. Right? Are we on the same page? Anybody confused? If you're confused, talk to me after the service. But I just want to make sure we understand. We're not saved by faith and works, but a faith that works. If we are connected by faith to the, to the true root, Jesus, we will have true fruit of faith. If we truly have the Holy Spirit within us, we will be different. I like the illustration that uh, Malachi uses in our membership class. He, he talks about the nature of the person who has met the Holy Spirit. Third person of the Trinity, right? We know who we're talking about? Yeah, like the Holy Spirit. Like when you become a Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit. And, and he says, it's kind of hard to imagine that you would meet the Holy Spirit, the Creator God, and leave unchanged. That sounds kind of ridiculous when you say it out loud, right? He says, it's kind of like saying, sorry I showed up for the sermon today, a little bit late, I got hit by a Mack truck when I was crossing the street and it drugged me a few hundred yards and so here I am. And you're like, I don't believe that. Why? Nobody hits a, a Mac, gets hit by a Mack truck and drug and then shows up with an iron shirt and then preaches like everything's fine. No, if you meet something like a Mack truck, it's going to change your day. And if you meet someone like the Holy Spirit, it's going to change your life. You'll look different. That's the nature of what saving faith looks like. So if you're here today and, and you haven't put your faith in Christ, or maybe you thought you put your faith in Christ, but you didn't know what real faith looked like, I would love to talk to you about what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ. We have lots of people in this room that would love to talk to you about what it looks like to follow Jesus. But don't leave here without putting your faith in Christ. Please hear me. Come in close. If you don't know Jesus, I've had people walk out of this room and on Monday morning get hit by a car and die, and I've had to do the funeral not knowing where they stood with Jesus. Don't be that guy. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, if you don't know that you're a believer, talk to me. I'd love to tell you about eternal life in Christ. Let's pray.